Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Before Zoom Info, business wins took a lot of time, energy, and patience. Now, Zoom Info helps you automate, scale up, and reach marketplace domination. Win faster at zoominfo.com. Zoom Info, how business goes to market. This is the most consequential and profound failure of presidential leadership in the modern era. Like, full stop. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, talking today with Ezra Klein, our topic as usual, the coronavirus pandemic. I've been thinking lately, as we sort of move to open things up in a way that feels, I think, unsatisfactory to myself, most people I know, I think a a lot of Vox readers. And in the spirit of actually trying to be generous, something I, I did was look back at the kind of original rhetoric around why we were doing shelter-in-place and and stay-at-home orders. And the slogan at that time that was very widespread was that we need to flatten the curve. And the explanation that was given for that in many cases was that you didn't want case volumes to get so high that you ran out of ICU beds and you ran out of ventilator capacity. Because if you did that, you would get a situation where you not just have a lot of cases and some of the sick people die, but the actual case fatality rate would start to surge because you have to essentially not treat some people who who are sick. And that was why we needed to flatten the curve. And There is genuine good news on the pandemic front, which is that even in New York City, it turned out that most of the hospital surge capacity that they deployed wasn't really necessary. And if you look around the country, even on a relatively pessimistic view of where we are with cases, caseloads are not rising that quickly. We have spare ICU beds. We have the kind of ability to treat people as best we can treat anyone. And unfortunately, we can't treat people all that well. And uh, a lot of people, particularly older people or people with um, cardiovascular problems, do, do die when they get coronavirus. But we are able to treat the sick cases. And in a way, I think that does provide a sort of policy basis for the great opening up. But at the same time, what we've seen is that a bunch of countries, New Zealand, Taiwan, Korea, Hong Kong, to an extent Singapore, to an extent Australia, are having real success at like actually stamping out coronavirus to the point where people are not getting sick anymore and that infections that they have in those countries are from international travelers who are then quarantined. And they're doing things like playing baseball games in Taiwan and Korea. And on ESPN the other day, I I tuned in briefly for some Korean baseball league. And they are therefore sort of totally beyond the like 
dichotomy of public health or opening up the economy because they've actually addressed the problem. And we're just not, we're like, we're not trying in America in a way that I've had trouble emotionally getting my handle around see, to see to see the United States genuinely not attempting to handle like the major crisis of the day. It I, I mean, I, I think it's a bad choice, but it also like it, it makes me sad. I've been like wandering around the house for days, not knowing what to say or do. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's <laughs> it's a, it's a different conversation, probably. <laughs> I think I want to try to say this clearly. This is the most consequential and profound failure of presidential leadership in the modern era, like full stop. And I think the capsule history you give is correct, Matt, but but I want to change one part of it, which is this. Yes, it is true that when this begins, there is primarily a social media driven and sort of media driven kind of rhetoric that we have to flatten the curve to raise the line. And that's a pretty simple message. Like It's basically a message of pause. We need to stop the virus from going into exponential spread so we don't completely overwhelm the healthcare system. It is not the case that what was supposed to happen was nothing but that, though. And the thing that really did happen here was the White House, the federal government of the United States, did not step into that pause period when we were buying them time at tremendous economic and social cost and step into that with an actual plan for what we were going to do with this time to do something on the other end. So what we, the people, can do is we can pause and like stay home and destroy the economy and keep ICU beds from filling up. And we did. And what they could do as a national government empowered with the Defense Production Act and a tri- basically a blank check from Congress, both in terms of authority and funding and financing, what they could do is pick up any of the now 10, 15 plans that different think tanks and experts have put forward to say, okay, what we are going to do is use this time to build out testing capacity, tracing capacity, centralized quarantining capacity, something such that then we have like a clear set of metrics for what we are achieving on what timetable and how we are going to reopen. And instead of that happening, the time we have bought has simply been time wasted. We have not done anything. Jeremy Kondike at the Center for Global Development did a very, I think, perceptive Twitter thread and then interview with our colleague Herman Lopez on this. We just federally wasted April. And so now... People are exhausted and hurting from the social distancing, the lockdowns. They want them to end, but we didn't do the things necessary. We didn't put into place the frameworks necessary, the technologies necessary, the personnel necessary to end them safely. And so what is going to begin happening in different parts of the country is we are going to end them unsafely. That might be okay in some places. It's going to be very not okay in others, but it is... Like it is a failure. It is like not the only way this could have gone and is not the way it should have gone. I would add to that that it's not just that we wasted the month of April, right? But to the extent that the White House did anything here, it was to accelerate the sort of development of a polarized culture war 
climate around these topics, right? You're a, an expert in, in polarization dynamics. I think it's largely inevitable that any high-profile political controversy will become polarized along the lines of everything else in our politics. But there was a time when a very small number of protesters were showing up at the Michigan State House to complain about a Democratic governor who at the time was doing things that were completely in line with the White House's stated recommendations. And President Trump could have tried to tamp down on it, could have said like, hey, guys, chill. Governor Whitmer's doing the right thing, but instead he's doing tweets about how we need to liberate Michigan and, you know, Virginia Democrats are trying to take away your precious Second Amendment. And it really kicked us into an ungluing type situation where you now have, you know, in Louisiana, you have divided government, right? You have a Democratic governor in a red state. So John Bell Edwards is trying to cite the White House's own reopening guidelines to say, look, like we don't meet the criteria that President Trump laid out, but the Republicans in the state legislature are pushing him to go further. And the the, the reason for that, obviously, is that the president walked away from his own guidelines in a sort of poorly explained way. I mean, you and I did a show about the different sort of wonk plans out there. And that was shortly before the White House's guidebook opened up. And then I, I discussed the, the White House plan with Jane and Dara. Uh, when the White House plan came out, you know, I thought it was awfully loosey-goosey compared to the things that the think tanks had developed in that it as you were saying, it, it didn't involve a real federal role. It wasn't like, and now here's what we're going to do. But it did have these criteria. I think it was like three parts wishful thinking to five parts sober-minded analysis, where they were basically hoping that if you could put together two straight weeks of declining case counts, that you could then open up, sort of fingers crossed that it'll go okay, and then open up some more. It didn't strike me as like a great idea, but it was... It was something. And then over the past, over the course of April, we've just totally abandoned that strategy in favor of, I don't know what to call it, right? But the white, the, the Republicans explicitly saying that they don't want to give financial assistance to state governments because they want state governments to be facing economic pressure to lift restrictions rather than saying that they want people to be cautious. And it's like, I, I try to avoid going over the top, right? It would be convenient if I could say, and then what sober-minded experts are telling me is there'll be a complete catastrophe next week, and we'll see how wrong Trump was, and let's turn it all down. But the truth is, like, nobody really knows, because we don't know how people will respond. We don't know exactly how the virus intersects with the weather. There's like a million things we don't really know. There seem to be big lags. It could be fine in most places for some time, but there's an incredible risk out there that something cataclysmic will happen in at least certain communities, and we don't have any kind of backstop on it. I want to go back to the point you made about polarization, because I've been thinking about this too. One of the things that has happened is that there is a debate about lockdown versus reopening. 
And that debate increasingly is pushing people into very extreme positions by having them, as often happens, respond to the most extreme positions. So I did a little Twitter thread about this the other day about how people are going to have to like try to not get locked into absolutist views on this. And a lot of people in my um, replies were talking about, you know, these insane protesters with their guns and their lack of face masks. And I agree, like those people are nuts. On the other hand, like it's very easy when you're responding to the most reckless players in a debate to then like lock yourself into a position where you 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 can't hear softer versions of it. And what is such a tragedy about this is when I say this is a false choice, I don't just mean it in the sense that, you know, well, the best way to have a healthy economy is to beat the virus. I mean, that is true, I think. But I also mean it in that these are not and should never have been the only choices that we were supposed to do things that were going to make it easier to open up and easier to get the economy back moving, and we just didn't do them. And so the White House, in not doing them, in not setting up the sort of intermediating structures, has made this dangerous. I've been trying to think of a good analogy on this, and, and I'm not great with analogies, so I, I haven't really. But the closest I've come is that, you know, it's like you're 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 at the bar, you know, and your friend is really, really, really drunk. And he says, well, I'm going to drive home. And you say, well, you can't drive home. Um, and he's like, well, I can't stay here forever. And it's like, well, that's true, too. But it's like, OK, so what you should do is like, like pay for a taxi yeah, or I'll, get an I'll, Uber. I'll, I'll give you a lift. I'll call you a cab. I'll give you You're a supposed like, to do something. Like you have to. You set something up and particularly, like, you know, now maybe it's like too late in the night to do it for some reason in, in this analogy, but you should have set something up earlier, right? Like when this was beginning to happen and beginning to be a problem, like so you could get home or, or your friend could get home. And we just – we didn't do it. And as you say, the thing is polarizing and people don't even really want to have this conversation exactly. But what Trump has begun to engage in here is like the most reckless form of federalism I've ever seen. It isn't like state and cities should have the authority because they can do this best. It's state and states and cities should have the authority because we don't want to do it, even though they don't really have like the money, the structure to like do everything they actually need to do here. And so in just completely giving up the field, and by the way, as you know, not even following his own guidelines, what Trump is often calling for now is in violation of the guidelines his own White House has produced because like he doesn't care. He didn't produce him. He's just jumping around day to day, given what he thinks will be good for the stock market. And it has just left everyone in a genuinely dangerous position. If it is true, and, and this is like one of my grimmer thoughts in this, if it is true that the federal government is at no point in this catastrophe going to step up and do its fucking job and put the money and put the planning behind testing and tracing and surveillance and quarantining and all the things that are working in other places, then you do get into this question of like, maybe we do need to figure out how to open up. Then you do get into this question of like, if you are actually forcing the worst of the possible choices, well, yeah, then we need to choose one and like, okay, like maybe rural areas should, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know what you do, but that shouldn't be the choice. And the thing that has been, I think, really hard to communicate to people is that, and, and this is what I thought the piece you did the other day, Matt, was really good at, was like, this is not the choice other countries are facing because they are doing the work not to face it. They are giving themselves other options. We are not. And so we are having this increasingly polarized argument. It is true that 
endless lockdown is economically ruinous. And it is true that opening up recklessly is unbelievably dangerous. And it is also true that in between that is supposed to be the federal government. And they're not. Not only is the government not doing big things on testing and contact tracing and isolation, the federal government also isn't I don't quite know how to put this right, but obviously, if there are things people can't do for public health reasons, that puts a crimp on the economy. But in a in an economics textbook, there's this idea of like the production possibility frontier, right? Which is like, there's different things you can do. Like you could have more tanks and fewer cars, or you could have more cars and fewer tanks. And then there's things you can't do, which is like, send a colony to Mars, right? Like you would need to invent some new possibilities. And then there's policy trade-offs on the frontier. But we are not operating at the frontier, economically speaking. That if you look at the interest rates on federal debt, and if you look at the way, you know, Ohio is moving forward with steep cuts to Medicaid because they are running out of money. But like the federal government has tons of fiscal capacity. There is no reason why in America, low income people should not be able to get uh, valid healthcare treatments, right? That's not a public health measure. And a very relaxed form of opening up would be to say like, yes, come get your chemotherapy. That's not like, hey, let's all go have a party at the bar. But it costs money, and only the federal government has the money to keep public services up and running. And they're just not doing it, right? And again, for for small businesses, we have this uh, PPP program, which, you know, as we've talked about on on previous shows, um, it actually does provide a good chunk of assistance to the companies that get the assistance. Uh, But tons and tons of small businesses just aren't getting assistance, both because the amount of money in the program is not big enough, the implementation is weird, uh, but also, uh, you know, a point um, an economist and small business owner, uh, Adam Ozimek, has been making to me is that the restrictions placed on the program are really pretty stringent. Like if you run a restaurant that just is in a high rent city, uh, because the program is built so specifically around paycheck protection, you probably aren't going to be able to access credit unless you can convince your landlord to forgive your rent, which like maybe you can, maybe you can't. And those are just things we could be doing. Like we could be buying more time for the economy in order to buy more time to do whatever it is we're going to do on public health. We're just not it's a it's a self-created economic emergency that is then compelling this kind of early move out. And it doesn't really make sense, right? Like if you think about Maine, right, uh, it's obviously going to be an economic disaster for them to not have their normal summer influx of tourists. But whether or not you talk about like, well, people should be allowed to go to sit down restaurants. Like, does anyone genuinely think that it would be a good idea for a small rural northeastern state to experience its normal giant seasonal influx of people from New York City? Right. Like, that's not that that's like on a different kind of issue. It's like we just need to help places that have tourism dependent economies. Las Vegas is not going to see a convention boom, no matter what 
policy initiative the state of Nevada indicates. So we can just let like every business owner in Las Vegas go bankrupt or we can do something to help them. Right. Like the the, the lockdowns are not I, I don't want to say they're not like the reason we're having economic problems, but they're not like the totality of it. People just aren't going to do all kinds of business travel, all kinds of tourism, all kinds of conventions. And and we're not, even while the president says he's pivoting to a focus on the economy, he's not focusing on the economy either. He's just like bad at being president. So I want to take not the other side of this argument, but I want to give the other concern here some due, which is if you are, as you and I are, on the like expert consensus here that like we need to beat the virus to reopen the economy safely it can get really easy to just like begin like banging the table about lockdowns and like the false choice but something that um i think has happened and again i really blame the white house for not like doing their job on this but but nevertheless it has happened is that to go back to what you were saying at the beginning of the show matt there was this initial argument about flattening the curve which we did and then in a kind of quiet way the rationale for lockdown slipped from we need to flatten the curve to keep icus from being overwhelmed to until there is a vaccine we can't run the risk of this getting out of control. And I think that if you are like not like reading the think tank plans and can kind of begin to see what the alternative options were if you had a whole different construction of federal response, but you're just listening to the debate, what you are hearing now is people who are advocating for an economically ruinous lockdown with no end in sight. And yes, like what you're saying is true about Vegas and um, conventions and Maine and tourism and all of it. And I, I, I totally agree with it. But I also understand, I mean, we can't do this for 18 months. And one of the tricky things here is it becomes really incumbent then on the people who are arguing for ongoing lockdown to explain, well, when does ongoing lockdown end? Who ends it? How does it end? What is the goal here? Like what, how do we open up? And there are versions of this, right? I mean, in California, in New York, in a lot of different states, there are different guidelines out there, but it is very hard to tell where states are along these curves. And because in many cases, states actually don't have the resources to do this well, and particularly not, by the way, if other states are opening up recklessly because this disease does not give a shit about borders. If like the future being proposed is like, opening up 30% and then reclosing down 20% one month or six weeks later, and then opening up 40% and then closing back down almost totally because like that's a scary future. And you get why people then get into the view of, well, screw it. Like maybe we just need to bear the cost. And, and, and so I think there's like a real problem in the debate because one thing that I do think is happening is that in arguing against dumb things Donald Trump says and things you see on the signs of protesters outside the Michigan State House while people are are holding, you know, long guns. There is, I believe, like a like a tendency to downplay the need to really like explain like how this is going to end and, and what the future here is going to be. I was talking to um the epidemiologist Michael Osterholm the other day, who's great and has this great podcast and you know people should follow him if they don't. And, and he was saying the same thing that like they're just we can't keep doing this. And what has happened is it's become hard to have the conversation about how we stop. 
like because the White House has become has associated itself increasingly through the person of the president, not through its guidelines with like a very extreme position around opening up. It is like created this thing where it's like it is like the liberal position that you support lockdown and is like the conservative position again here in the like the very simplified like online fighting world that, you know, this is being overrun or like you just got to let grandma die or something. And I don't know how to have. I mean, we can I think your article the other is nuanced. I'm trying to write something that's nuanced, like we're trying to have this conversation. But at some level, like this conversation is going to anchor itself around the le- the political leadership of the country. Like there's a liberal idea out there that you will hear and not only liberal, which is like we should listen to the experts. We should listen to the scientists. And I want to say this very clearly because like I agree with it. This show's called The Weeds. Like I ran Wonk Blog. Like I know y'all like I like charts too. The scientists can't do this one. There's a very good paper from SIDRAP, which is part of the group Osterholm is, is part of about crisis communication. And it does a really nice job, given this paper is by a bunch of public health scientists, that like the scientists can tell you about the science, but they can't tell you how to weigh the values and risks to all of society. Like that is what political leadership does. Political leadership that is listening to science, that is listening to the country, and that is weighing things that are very difficult to weigh. Like this is a hard job being a political leader right now. It is an incredibly hard job being president. And the president is failing. And if the president is failing, it actually isn't clear to me who can step into that role. I don't think Gavin Newsom can do it because not enough people watch his press conferences. I think he's doing a good job. I wish he were president right now. But like, I don't know how to have this conversation better, and I don't see how it's going to get better as long as Trump is the one leading it. And if I sound frustrated and upset, it's because I am. We don't need to be trapped here, and we are, because we pick the worst person for the job. And the job is really important. Let's take a break, though, because because I want to talk about what are real trade-offs and what aren't, because I think that's part of what gets flattened and, and simplified here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. 
Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burroughs Furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burroughs' new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Businesses have always needed customers. So customer engagement has always been a thing. You know, steak dinners, golf, in-person handshakes. Not exactly efficient, though. But thanks to Zoom Info, times have changed. Now you can engage with the right customers across all channels and grow your business. Efficiently and effectively, all from one platform. Sorry, steak dinner guy. We've got work to do. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at zoominfo.com. Zoominfo, how business goes to market. It seems to me that when you enter a serious conversation with people, whether they are public health experts or economic experts, they will tell you that like there are significant trade-offs that exist. A baseline one that has no monetary value is grandparents and their grandkids. The safest thing for an elderly but able-bodied couple is to just stay home. You know, get your groceries delivered, get your meals delivered, don't see your kids, don't see your grandkids, just keep yourself safe. But it makes people miserable. <laughs> to never leave the house and to not see things and you might want to take a risk like that that is a real a, a totally genuine kind of trade-off that exists that's not public health versus economics it's you know it's like your life versus what is your life for you know and it's out there and and people need to think about that uh, another one that is very real is it is bad for the economy for state and local governments to need to implement austerity measures. But conservative politicians and policy analysts have a considered view that state and local government in the United States is very wasteful and that if a little pressure can be brought to bear to cut back state and local governments, there will be important long-term benefits. Because I think I sound like I'm caricaturing conservatives when I say this, but a thing conservatives believe, and we have talked about like the Oregon Medicaid study, right, is that the United States government spends billions of dollars a year on providing health insurance to low-income people that does not help them at all. Like, I, I don't think that's what the evidence says, but conservatives say that all the time. And so if you believe that, that would be a hideous, scandalous thing. And so when they see Ohio cutting Medicaid, they don't say, well, that's really tragic. We should do something about it. They say, 
that's Mike DeWine making a tough call to do the right thing. And if a budget crisis inspires more governors to make that tough call, like that's a that's a good thing, right? And we have all kinds of trade-offs of that sort that are kind of happening here, right? Like we have the health and safety of the people who work in meatpacking plants, which are not shut down under quote unquote lockdowns versus the desire of American consumers to eat meat, right? Which is like a very, very real trade-off that's that's happening here. And what I see Trump doing in this is not prioritizing the economy over public health exactly, but making a series of very, very deeply conservative decisions about what kinds of trade-offs matter, which is not the economy versus health, but is like we have to have budget cuts versus we should have the government float people. It's a decision that this bonus unemployment insurance in which low wage workers are actually doing pretty well, that like that was a mistake, right? It's it's not because you will hear a rhetoric a lot of the time that, oh, we're doing this for the poor retail workers. But it's not just that the retail workers are safer taking bonus UI. They are better off economically, but it offends conservative sensibilities to just have people on the dole. They want them out there. They want them They want them working. I, I quoted this thing from a, a book um, about plagues in, in the Renaissance, but there was, a, there was a big concern during Venice's quarantines uh, that it was, it was bad that people were getting free food when they were in the quarantine system because it was going to make them sort of uppity. Uh, when when the plague ended. And there's there's a fair amount of that going on. I mean, we keep seeing stories in which small business owners are saying not, oh, I feel sad for my workers who I'm not paying them, but oh, I feel sad for me because my workers don't want to come back to work because they're getting this good deal out of unemployment insurance. And that's, I think, the the problem here, right? Like, there's so much we could do to increase tests and higher contact tracers and support state and local budgets, right, to move on both fronts simultaneously so that there is like more stuff happening, but it's happening more safely. But all of it would involve spending a lot of money. And I don't want to deny Congress has spent a lot of money. And after that phase three bill, they just clearly decided they were done, that they had reached the like psychological breaking point of the American conservative movement. And they just Republicans in Congress. It, yeah, Republicans that like Mitch McConnell was not going to put another trillion dollars into this. And at that point, there's not that much you can do. There's, there's not like a magic way to improve the public health and economic situations. You're just operating in this shitty resource deprived circumstance. I wrote this in my um, response to Mark Andreessen, but if among the problems in American government and the things that make it hard to build is if you have a if like one of the two political parties and in fact the one that controls more of the government doesn't want the government to work, it will not work. Like it's just simple as that. I was a little bit annoyed at Alex Tabarak, an economist at George Mason University and a, a thoughtful guy. Like I, I'm not I'm not here to bash him, but he was like. We only did $25 billion for testing. And he was like linked to my piece like that's not because of the filibuster. Like that's like something's wrong with America. It's like, yeah, the Republican Party's wrong with America. Right. 
Like that $25 billion for testing was something Democrats fought for. A national plan around testing was something Democrats had to fight for. Like, and as I said elsewhere in that essay, like I would like Alex to come out and say, yes, as a longstanding libertarian, I have come to the view that the Republican Party right now is a catastrophe ruining the country. And that like, obviously, if Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama were president, they would want $50 billion for testing and would be eager to set up a national testing strategy. This is not like a nobody wants to build or you can't imagine anybody would want to do this. It's that these guys don't want to do it. And even on conservatism, I don't think every I don't think every conservative would be like this. Um, to me, the model you just offered, like the way I would think about it is the outcomes we are getting. There is like a circle, right? It's a Venn diagram of like Donald Trump does not want responsibility for this problem. Right. He does not want to be blamed for it. He does not want to do the work of fixing it. He does not want it to be his problem. What he wants is for the stock market to be high and for people to blame blue state governors and mayors for what's going wrong. So Donald Trump does not want responsibility here. And then there are certain conservative ideas that really work when the leader does not want to take responsibility for a problem, right? It's like like negative ideas work there, right? You have to do huge state and local budget cuts, for instance. Like that'll work in that context. There are conservatives who have had perfectly reasonable thinking on this. Scott Gottlieb at the American Enterprise Institute, who is a former FDA commissioner under um, uh, Trump and uh, like a longtime AI guy, he's a guy is a conservative, has been excellent. And like if people were listening to Scott Gottlieb in the administration, like things would be better. Mike DeWine, who is making budget decisions I do not like, has at the very least like clearly been serious about combating the virus. Mitt Romney has had like a number of very reasonable ideas throughout this entire thing. But that's obviously not all of them. And so what you're getting is just like what is in between the Venn diagram of like Donald Trump does not want to be president in this way, what he wants to be his figurehead, and like what parts of conservatism work if the federal government is going to like in to take a back seat in a national ongoing crisis and like that like that intersection is an ugly bad cruel intersection there is just a lot we could be doing i mean there's been tweets going around all week where this or that usually federalist writer or something is saying you know well fuck it like if grandma's to die because i want to go bowling like i'm going bowling like sorry about that everybody you can stay home if you want and and to be generous to this, it's like the idea is that this level of economic pain is unsustainable. And you know what? If like it was actually the economic pain you were concerned about, you could pass Pramila Jayapal's Paycheck Guarantee Act tomorrow and the economic pain would more or less go away. Like this is a solvable problem. Now, you might say, well, we can't do that forever. And that would be true. And I might refer you to earlier comments on like how to not do that forever. You set up testing and tracing, like you do the things, but you cannot run government with a mix of incompetence on the one hand and total abdication of government functions and responsibilities on the other. And then say, well, look, the outcome of that is terrible, so we should stop trying to do anything about it. I, I think it was Brian Schatz, the senator from Hawaii, who, who said to me, I, this is like a much shorter way of, of saying this, but like there's an old line, Republicans say government is incompetent and then they get elected and prove it. And like, here we are, like that's literally what is happening. And they are using the outcome of that incompetence to justify even crueler policy decisions. And 
it is just such a tragedy. Like people will die. Their futures will be shattered. And then it's like this idea that we're all going to – you've been writing this about meatpacking plants. But this thing has, let's call it a lethality rate somewhere in the 0.5 to 1% range. That seems to be what we think is true right now. And then it has a hospitalization and serious complication rate, including for younger people. It's much higher than that. I know people who have been – who are my age who have been in a coma from this. I know people who have been in the ICU from this. The idea that you're going to be in a workplace of 100 people and like one of them is going to die and X number others are going to be in the ICU and you know it's circulating in your workplace. You'd be like, cool, coming in. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And that's where, you know, so I've been I've been trying to uh, mine my 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 Philip Tetlock better during this crisis and not just like go off on like highly speculative, you know, news grabby, uh, but unlikely scenarios. But I mean, one thing that really does haunt me is the possibility that states take restrictions off over the course of May. There's a lag in the pace at which people actually start doing more things. And then by the time it's June, it's July, it's warmer. You have fewer people. People are spending less time inside. It seems like the virus doesn't transmit as much in there. A lot of the most susceptible people have already kind of gotten sick. There are no big events planned. You know, we don't do Fourth of July parades. So we go through June, we go through July, we go through August, and numbers are kind of like they're edging up, right? With a uh, a R that's gone from a little bit below one to just a little bit above one. And we kind of get accustomed to things, right? I mean, if 2,000 Americans had died of coronavirus on March 5th, it would have been like, holy shit, right? Like 27-point fonts. Today, most days were below 2,000, but we're above 2,000 enough days that it's not like, holy shit. Right. And if we start creeping up to the fact that, well, it's maybe it's 3000 some days, but we're accustomed to it and we're not blaring sirens, then, you know, September, October. Well, if the whole reason we've done this is that we need to get the economy going again, then like kids need to go to school. I mean, if you go back to the original, I think, bad decision making in New York City, Bill de Blasio was being stubborn and he was, I think, not listening to the right people. But the concern that he and his school's chancellor had about the severe negative impact on low-income children of keeping them out of school was not crazy, right? And if we're going to say, well, we're going to have all the restaurants opening, we're going to have all the stores opening, we're going to have people dropping dead in meatpacking plants, you can't, like, not send kids to school. Among other things, their parents can't go to work if there's not going to be schools. But then does this explode? Like, do we in September and October actually get back to the ICUs overwhelmed kind of scenario? Like if you build out a much broader base than we had in March, so it's not just one city that we can send. Because there were, I I, I mean, I've seen like planes full of ICU nurses went to New York City to deal with the emergency. But if you have, say, 80% of the scale of the New York problem, but it's simultaneously in Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, Atlanta, Nashville, Cincinnati, like there's not enough planes full of nurses. And then we're back to flatten the curve, except also we've tapped out of everybody's mental and emotional 
resources. And I don't know, like, is that my 50th percent forecast? I guess probably not. But it's not like out of the question. You need to be mindful of that possibility. And nothing in the current strategy is suggestive of that. And and that is why I think that the sort of extreme voices actually are worth paying attention to, because there's no limiting principle currently being articulated by the White House, right? Like once you decide, well, we've just got to open up with no stated guidelines, like where do you go, right? Like if things turn out to be worse than anticipated, like what do you do? Well, and the other thing in that scenario that I I think that scenario is very plausible, number one, and something that I think you could see practically, you know, in the fall when there is an election coming is a real look to go back to some of the polarization discourse. Something that has happened over the past hundred years is we polarize by density. There is not a single city that is denser than 900 people per square mile, not a county denser than that in this country that votes red. Rural areas overwhelmingly vote red. And there's already an effort to say, like, this is not an America problem. This is like a blue city problem and that they should be blamed. So um, our colleague Zach Beecham wrote this piece about, I think it was Zach, about how um, Canada has been doing a lot better on this than America. And we got email, like a, I was copied on a series of emails from a reader who's like, this is ridiculous. You guys are bad at math. If you don't include New York and New Jersey, we're doing just as well as Canada. Right. And so it's like, yeah, if you like decide we are no longer the United States of America and parts of America don't count, then you can totally mess the numbers however you want. Like take out every place that has a bad coronavirus outbreak. We could completely imagine, and I think there's already some work on this happening, saying it can clearly get bad in rural areas, but it's going to be worse and harder to control in dense urban areas. It just is. Like that's how these things go. And just like a real effort to say this is not an America problem. Like the blue cities want to crash our economy and screw you all over because like they can't deal with, you know, like coronavirus or like they chose to live shoulder to shoulder. And by the way, I think there's actually something to potentially be said for the idea that we're a little too one size fits all with lockdown and rural areas or less dense areas might totally plausibly be able to have a different equilibrium than cities do, particularly over the next 18 months. Um, They're going to be easier to go back into social distancing. Things aren't going to spread as fast. I mean, there is currently a higher growth rate of rural cases than, than, than city cases, but I wouldn't read so much into that that you think everything is the same and everything needs the same policy equilibrium. But I do think one really dangerous thing is that by layering on Now that density has become layered on to our existing political divisions, which again, it didn't used to be. If you go back to like 1920, how dense of an area you live in does not predict democratic share of the House vote. Um, By now, it's like almost perfect. By layering that on in an election year, I think like one way this might play out is just to really explode what is already an urban rural divide in this country. What I think is interesting about that, though, is that you know, urban areas, I think, are not speak of coronavirus specifically, um, but in general, urban areas are more vulnerable to infectious disease transmission for roughly the same reason that urban areas account for a disproportionate share of economic activity. Right. I mean, it's there's both like more people in the cities than rural areas, but there's even more extra economic 
activity in the cities. And they're more vulnerable to infectious disease transmission precisely because of that. Like, there's just literally more stuff happening in urban areas. There's a greater level of retail specialization, and therefore people go out more. Like, if you look at, like, restaurants, right? Like, obviously there are restaurants in rural areas. Um, Obviously, there are fewer restaurants in rural areas. In part, that's because there are fewer people. But there's actually fewer restaurants per person in rural areas because you can't support like a Japanese restaurant and an Indian restaurant and a taco place if there's not any any people in your town. So people don't do as much stuff. So they don't get the flu as much, right? It seems like coronavirus just follows that exact same basic pattern. But the upshot of that is that, you know, Politics aside, it's like you can't run the kind of like, like it's it's like a plane with one wing, and then obviously like there's a sharp dependency, right? Like as you would say, if I was like a rural identity politics person, it's like you would all starve in the cities. Like we have more restaurants, but we don't have any food. Um, so but it it doesn't it doesn't work. It's like the the rural economies are pulled forward by the more intense economic activity of the cities be- precisely because the cities depend on rural natural resources to actually fuel these things. So, you know, you could have different guidelines, I think, particularly around certain kinds of activities, it's much more um, viable, I think, to have in-person church services in rural areas, precisely because there isn't that much other stuff like happening where you would have super spreading uh, events and you could isolate them if there was an outbreak. But you're not going to be able to ring the fence the rural economy, right? So like one thing that we've seen is that there's a total catastrophe in the Texas oil shale region. Um, and that's not because the government of Texas has shut down um, oil shale production. It's because uh, car traffic has declined because white collar office workers are not going into the offices. And nobody is talking about bringing that back. Right. Like it's just risky and pointless. We're doing OK here on Zoom. And also people aren't flying planes. Plane traffic has dropped 95 percent. And even if that bounces back like really strong, you know, and we go up to 20 percent, it's just still like the price of oil is going to be really low. And the Texas and North Dakota oil producing regions are going to be fucked until we are back to full strength. And there's no way to like regulate your way back there. You do have to like tackle the problem or else it's not going to go. And I find it incredibly frustrating. I feel like we're sort of plunging on a very unwise course of action on the assumption that we're going to gain economic prosperity. And I'm just I'm really, really skeptical that we will. I will I will say, like, as I go kind of closing comment here, I just I I just want to like force this so much like the only way out of this is to break the choice, right? Mm-hmm. The only way out of this is for this not to be a choice between endless lockdown with no other answer until there's a vaccine or like reckless reopening with no answer at all except for locking back down when it fails. And that is not the choice other places are making. That is not the only choice on offer to us. And it is the greatest trick this administration ever pulled to convince so many people that that is the choice 
to like distract from their failure to do what was necessary to open up the options here so that people are, are arguing about a choice set that is itself insane. Like that is itself two completely unworkable options. And like if you are getting caught in that argument, like on social media or with your parents or whatever, like get out of it. And like Democrats who I think like understand some of this, but like Biden and others like have to get out of this too. Um, it's really easy and you get a lot of engagement for just like dunking on the worst of this. But the only sustainable out here is for people to open up the choice space and to figure out a way for it to actually open um, to like actually. I don't know how you get past a federal government um, and a presidential administration that does not want to do the incredibly difficult work of making this possible. But like that is a task now we are either this is going to be a disaster or we are somehow going to have to get around this administration quickly. Um, because like they are the problem now. Coronavirus isn't impossible. Like other countries are proving that. But it is impossible to beat if you don't have a government willing to do what is necessary to beat it. It is like that catalytic interaction that has caught us here. And like all of like everybody else, given how hard this is going to be, has to like keep that in mind. This is not inevitable. Like this is a choice. Um, and we need to like force another one to be made. Yep. <sighs> Absolutely. Um, okay. Well, thanks, Ezra. Um, thanks to uh, everybody out there for, for listening. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Before Zoom Info, business wins took a lot of time, energy, and patience. But today, Zoom Info aligns your sales and marketing teams, identifies ideal customers faster, and automates your go-to-market strategy. So you can scale up and get on the fast track to marketplace domination. And that's how winners win. Unlock insights, engage customers, win faster at ZoomInfo.com. ZoomInfo, how business goes to market.